0: Part 1, Section 7 of The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1, by Edward Tyus Cook, The Single Life. The craving for sympathy which exists between two who are to form one indivisible and perfect whole is in most cases between man and woman, in some between man and God. This the Roman Catholics have understood and expressed under the simile Christ the Bridegroom, the nun married to him, the monk married to the Church, or as St. Francis to poverty, or as St. Ignatius Loyola, to the divine mistress of his thoughts, the Virgin. This sort of tie between man and God seems alone able to fill the want of the other, the permanent exclusive tie between the one man and the one woman. Florence Nightingale's Suggestions for Thought. I had three paths among which to choose, wrote Miss Nightingale in a diary of 1850. I might have been a literary woman, or a married woman, or a hospital sister we have seen how she turned away from the first path why did she reject the second our dear flo wrote mrs bracebridge to miss clark in eighteen forty four has just recovered from a severe cold but i hear nothing of what i long for that is some noble-hearted true man one who can love her as she deserves to be loved prepared to take her to a house of her own And three years later, another friend, Fanny Allen, in describing a visit to Embley, said of Florence, What a wife she would make for a man worthy of her, but I am not sure I yet know the mate fit for her. The two nightingale girls, she surmised, would experience a difficulty in finding any one they would like well enough to forsake such a home. In the case of Florence, the position was ill understood by outsiders to her, The home was not a happy garden which she would be very reluctant to forsake, but rather a gilded cage from which she eagerly sought a way of escape. To us who had the means of knowing her in most thoughts and feelings, the question thus presents itself in another light than that in which it appeared to her friends at the time. She craved for a larger, fuller life than she could find at home. Why could she not, or why did she not seek it in marriage? It is love that sometimes frees the imprisoned spirit, that enables it to find and to express itself. That Miss Nightingale remained single was not the result of lack of opportunity to marry. The reason is to be found elsewhere, in feelings, thoughts, and ideals, in reasoned convictions and aspirations, which, if I can present them aright, will illuminate her character and her career." In 1873, Miss Nightingale, like the rest of the world, was reading Middlemarch, and a paper which she wrote in that year contained some notice of George Eliot's heroine. A novel of genius has appeared, its writer once put before the world in a work of fiction too, certainly the most living, probably the most historically truthful, presentment of the great idealist, Savonarola of Florence. This author now can find no better outlet for the heroine also an idealist, because she cannot be a St. Teresa or an Antigone, than to marry an elderly sort of literary impostor and quick after him his relation, a baby sort of itinerant cloricon, see Irish fairies, or inferior faun, see Hawthorne's matchless transformation. Yet close at hand in actual life was a woman, an idealist too, and if we mistake not a connection of the author's, who has managed to make her ideal very real indeed. By taking charge of blocks of buildings in poorest London, while making herself the rent collector, she found work for those who could not find work for themselves. She organized a system of visitors. She brought sympathy and education to bear from individual to individual, so that one might be tempted to say, Were there one such woman with power to direct the flow of volunteer help nearly everywhere running to waste in every street of London's East End, almost might the East End be persuaded to become Christian. Could not the heroine, the sweet, sad enthusiast, have been set to some such work as this? Indeed it is past telling the mischief that is done, and thus putting down youthful ideals. There are not too many to begin with, there are few indeed to end with even without such a gratuitous impulse as this to end them. In this passage, as in much that Florence Nightingale wrote, there is an autobiographical note. She did not marry because she held fast to an ideal, an ideal nearer to that of Octavia Hill than to that of Dorothea Brooke. Section 2. For two or three years, Florence Nightingale was in much trouble of mind from an attachment which one of her cousins had formed for her. In no case would she have thought it right to marry him. Accident or relationship, she wrote some years later, throw people together in their childhood, and acquaintance has grown up naturally and unconsciously. Accordingly in novels, it is generally cousins who marry, and now it seems the only natural thing, the only possible way of making an intimacy. And yet we know that intermarriage between relations is in direct contravention of the laws of nature for the well-being of the race it was supposed by some of the family circle at the time that this was the only objection to an engagement but there were others florence was in no mood then or afterwards to marry for the sake of marrying Marriage, she had written to miss clark page 66 was not an absolute blessing and though she liked her cousin she was in no sense in love with him. She felt relief, intense and unmixed, as she recorded in her private meditations, when she learnt that the young man had at last forgotten her. But though this episode left her heart whole, it had a great and painful influence upon her mind. Cleanse all my love from the desire of creating an interest in another's heart is the burden of many of her meditations." Among other attachments of which Florence Nightingale was the object, there was one which had a deeper effect and called for a more difficult and searching choice in life. She was asked in marriage by one who continued for some years to press his suit. It was a proposal which seemed to those about her to promise every happiness. The match would by all have been deemed suitable and by many might have been called brilliant. And Florence herself was strongly drawn to her admirer. She had not come to this state of mind in hasty inclination. She was on her guard against any such temptation. Many years before, in a letter to her brother Jonathan, as she called Miss Hilary Bonham Carter, she had written, It strikes me that in all the most unworldly poetry, both prose and verse, la passion qu'on appelle l'inclination, is treated in a very extraordinary way. When one finds a comparative stranger becoming all of a sudden more essential to one than one's family, via flattery in general of one sort or another, one is content with saying to oneself, oh, that's love, instead of saying how unjust and how blind this feeling is. I wonder whether if people were to examine, for as Socrates says, the life unexamined is not a living life, they would not find that whatever it may ripen to afterwards, this feeling at first is generally begun by vanity or jealousy or self-love, and that what is very much to be guarded against instead of submitted to is the stranger's admiration, and I suppose everybody has been susceptible at one time of their lives, having more effect upon one than one's own families. In this case, however, the stranger's admiration had stood the test, She felt drawn to him, not by vanity or self-love, but because she admired his talents, and because the more she saw of him, the greater pleasure did she find in his society. She leaned more and more upon his sympathy, yet when the proposal first came, she refused it, and when it was renewed, she persisted. Then, it may be said, she cannot have been in love with him, and in one sense that is, I suppose, quite true. For love, as the poets tell us, does not reason, and Florence Nightingale reasoned deeply over her case. But it is certain that she felt at least as much affection as suffices to make half the marriages in the world. She turned away from a path to which she was strongly drawn in order to pursue her ideal. In one of the many pages of autobiographical notes which she preserved in relation to this episode in her life Miss Nightingale thus explained her refusal to marry. I have an intellectual nature which requires satisfaction, and that would find it in him. I have a passional nature which requires satisfaction, and that would find it in him. I have a moral and active nature which requires satisfaction, and that would not find it in his life. I can hardly find satisfaction for any of my natures, Sometimes I think that I will satisfy my passional nature at all events because that will at least secure me from the evil of dreaming. But would it? I could be satisfied to spend a life with him combining our different powers in some great object. I could not satisfy this nature by spending a life with him in making society and arranging domestic things. To be nailed to a continuation and exaggeration of my present life without hope of another, would be intolerable to me. Voluntarily to put it out of my power ever to be able to seize the chance of forming for myself a true and rich life would seem to me like suicide. Florence Nightingale was no vestal ascetic. A true and perfect marriage was, she thought, the perfect state. Marrying a man of high and good purpose and following out that purpose with him, is the happiest lot. The highest, the only true love, is when two persons, a man and a woman, who have an attraction for one another, unite together in some true purpose for mankind and God. The thought of God in instituting marriage was that these two, when the right two are united, shall throw themselves fearlessly into the universe and do its work secure of companionship and sympathy. Miss Nightingale recognized also that for many women, marriage, even though it may fall short of this ideal state, is the proper lot in life. But she held on the other hand that there are some women who may be marked out for single life. I don't agree at all, she wrote in 1846, that a woman has no reason, if she does not care for anyone else, for not marrying a good man who asks her, and I don't think Providence does either. I think he has, as clearly marked out, some to be single women as he has others to be wives, and has organized them accordingly for their vocation. I think some have every reason for not marrying, and that for these it is much better to educate the children who are already in the world and can't be got out of it than to bring more into it. The primitive church clearly thought so too, and provided accordingly, and though no doubt the primitive church was in many matters an old woman, yet I think the experience of ages has proved her right in this. And again, ours is a system of Christianity without the cross. The single life was the life of Christ. Has heaven bestowed everlasting souls on men, and sent them upon earth for no better purpose than to marry and be given in marriage? True, there is in this world much more waiting to be done, but is it the man leading a secular life who will do it? He is apt to see nothing beyond himself and the fair creature he has chosen for his bride. And as with men, so with women. There are women of intellectual or actively moral natures for whom marriage, unless it realizes the perfect ideal, means the sacrifice of their higher capacities to the satisfaction of their lower death she wrote again in a notebook of 1846 is often the gateway to the garden where we shall no longer hunger and thirst after real satisfaction marriage on the contrary is often an initiation into the meaning of that inexorable word never which does not deprive us it is true of what at their festivals the idle and inconsiderate call life but which brings in reality the end of our lives and the chill of death with it. In her own case, Miss Nightingale was conscious of capacities within her for high purposes for mankind and for God. She could not feel sure that the marriage which was offered to her would enable her to employ those capacities to their best and fullest power, and so she sacrificed her passional nature to her moral ideal. I'm 30, she wrote on her birthday in her diary of 1850, the age at which Christ began his mission. Now no more childish things, no more vain things, no more love, no more marriage. Now, Lord, let me only think of thy will. And amongst her sayings in another book, I find this, strong passions to teach the secrets of the human heart and a strong will to hold them in subjection. These are the keys of the kingdom in this world and the next. Florence Nightingale turned away from marriage in order that she might remain entirely free to fulfill her vocation. Section 3 It was not a sacrifice which cost her little. If, as some may hold, she was not in love, yet she confessed to herself many of a lover's pangs, And there were moments when, as she met her admirer again, or as she thought of him, she was half inclined to repent of her choice of the single life. And the sacrifice, moreover, was of an immediate satisfaction to an ideal which, after all, she might never be able to realize. The legends of the saints tell of many virgins and martyrs who have crucified the flesh and sacrificed worldly happiness for the love of Christ. But when the sacrifice was made, the love which seemed to them far better was already theirs. In the ears of St. Agnes, the divine voice had sounded with sweet assurance, and she had tasted of the milk and honey of his lips. St. Dorothea was already espoused in a garden where celestial fruits and roses that never fade surrounded her. And to Florence Nightingale also happiness was to be given, filling all her life for some years so that she sought no better heaven But at the time when she made her choice and renounced all else to follow her ideal, the way before her was still dark and uncertain. She was conscious of a call, but she had no assurance of appointed work. To have entered into a marriage which gave no sure promise of her ideal would have been, she felt, the suicide of a soul. Yet, when she was called to choose between the two paths, her present life was starvation perhaps it was the price which she had paid for her ideal that led to what in later years some considered a certain hardness in her when once a woman had devoted her life to the work of nursing miss nightingale had little sympathy with any turning back she seemed sometimes in such cases to regard marriage as the unpardonable sin but another and a loftier train of thought was prompted by her experience at the end of one of her meditations upon marriage and her refusal of it, I find these significant words. I must strive after a better life for woman. She did not mean a better life than marriage. She meant also a life that should make the conditions of marriage better. In the world in which she lived, daughters, she wrote, can only have a choice among those people whom their parents like, and who like their parents well enough to come to their house. One may doubt whether in the mid-Victorian or in any age young men paid calls only because they liked the parents but unquestionably restriction in the employments of women involves also limitation in the opportunities for choice in marriage and at the same time the lack of interest and variety in the lives of girls at home makes many of them inclined to marriage as a mere means of escape by throwing open new spheres of usefulness to women miss nightingale hoped at one and the same time to improve the lot of those who were marked out to be wives, and to find satisfaction for those marked out for the single life. End of the single life.